Luke and Acts um, form a two-volume work, uh, both addressed to uh, the recipient Theophilus. Um, and once again, we're kind of uh, falling back on our writing technology for an, uh, some insight into what's going on. Uh, Luke and Acts together make up about a quarter of a New Testament. They're really big books for the New Testament, but not that big compared to like Kings, First Kings, Second Kings, which were also just regarded as one book in uh, the Jewish Bible. It's uh, Kings, um, but it was divided for convenience into two scrolls because the scrolls become unwieldy if they're any longer. So you look at the longest, even Psalms the longest book in the Bible, well, that was on three different scrolls. Um, and somehow we think of it as one book, but Kings is two. Um, such are the mysteries of um, uh, how things happen through history. And anyway, the um, Uh, the book of Luke and the book of Acts are both about it's the upper end of how much material you could fit onto one scroll comfortably. Um, and as such, you know, they're composed as two different books, but there is a unity to them, um, especially if you look at the geographical concern of Luke, where uh, Matthew... He has this focus on the mountain. Uh, Luke ends his temptation uh, with a, uh, a temptation in the temple. And at the beginning of the book of Luke, we see a scene taking place in the temple. It doesn't start with uh, Joseph and Mary. Um, it starts with Zacharias, uh, who has gone up to the temple. Um, the priests were distributed without uh, throughout the country you know you couldn't have all the priests at the temple all the time and so they would leave their family for a period of you know a few weeks come down and minister in Jerusalem and then go back home and um this is probably the high point of your year was getting to go be at the temple and he has a vision there um Jesus you know, Luke is the one that talks about Jesus kind of uh, staying behind and being in the temple when his parents leave town. It um, also ends the gospel in the temple. And if you look to Acts, at the very beginning, Jesus is saying goodbye in Galilee, but he sends his disciples back to Jerusalem to await Pentecost. And so the church technically gets its start at Pentecost. Um, and they you know, stop being simply the scared disciple of Jesus hiding out and start going out and preaching their experience of the resurrection. Um, and then throughout the book, there are these concentric circles that are spreading wider and wider till at the end of Acts, they have ended up in Rome. And it probably serves both a theological and a legal reason uh, the theological reason to show that the gospel is meant for everybody, not just Jewish people. It starts with Jewish people, but it spreads to Gentiles. And um, Luke may be the only 
Gentile to have um, written books in the Bible. So the spread to the Gentiles was important. Um, and also legally, we've talked about this before, uh, Christianity um, was in a dispute over whether it was the continuation of an ancient religion or it was some new upstart religion and therefore could be oppressed and persecuted by Rome. So they wanted to maintain the continuity with the Old Testament for legal reasons as well as for theological ones. Okay, so the book of Luke was, um, according to tradition, um, written by Dr. Luke, the companion of Paul, his physician, and a Gentile convert. Um, this is what ancient external evidence from outside the book, that is, tells us. Um, and there is actually a little bit of internal evidence to support this, and that is that there are sections in the book of Acts where uh, we switch from third person to first person. Instead of they did this, they did that. Uh, all of a sudden, we did this and we did that. And so scholars, uh, you know, devout scholars, uh, have uh, looked at these passages to study, well, who was we? <laughs> who is with Paul at this point? And so the most likely candidate for we, uh, based on these passages, seems to be Luke. Um, we don't know. If it's not Luke, we don't know at all. You know, there's, um, that's the only tradition we have. Um, so it's either by Luke or by Anonymous. Take your choice. The date, probably some years after the Gospel of Mark, assuming, as I do, that Luke uses the Gospel of Mark in composing his Gospel, and also uh, Q, the common source between him and Matthew, and also L, which stands for special stuff Luke only has, only Luke has. Um, and he does put in a good bit of more teaching material, as does Matthew, uh, where Matthew distributes these among the various sermons, um, and, uh, Luke puts them in sermons, yes, not the five set pieces of Matthew, but rather uh, Luke's big expansion is the tr final trip from Galilee to Jerusalem, which takes just chapter after chapter after chapter to get down there uh, to Jerusalem. Now, as far as the audience, um, it, there is a specific, if enigmatic audience, most excellent Theophilus. Uh, Theophilus uh, is a combination of two words, Theos, and these are Greek words. Theos is the Greek word for God, and Phyllis means love, uh, philosophy is love of wisdom, uh, for example. Um, and it could be lover of God or beloved by God. It kind of comes out about the same either way. Um, and people have, scholars have speculated that the audience, um, well, probably Christians, but to the ones he's trying to win over, 
Uh, maybe the primary audience would be God-fearers living in somewhere like Ephesus or Rome or Alexandria, Egypt. I don't think Ephesus was in the stuff I looked at. I think that was John. But um, Alexandria, Egypt, and Rome are kind of as far apart in the <laughs> Roman uh, universe as you can get and still be in the Roman Empire. So really, we kind of don't know. Um, but uh, the... Um, Theophilus, um, the god lover, was a specific designation, um, or god fearer. Um, usually we don't think of Judaism as being particularly, um, evangelistic, um, not too terribly active in trying to get converts. Uh, that's been kind of a hallmark of Christianity. Uh, but not always Jews, uh, Jews. But at this time, there actually was a fair amount of outreach in the ancient world. Um, it's just that they took their time with a conversion um, so that um, many, especially who might not want to undergo the rite of circumcision as adults, um, they could nevertheless get interested in Judaism, start coming to synagogue, start worshiping God, and um, be called a God-fearer. And then as they had kids, their kids would be circumcised and brought over into Judaism formally. Um, so it was kind of a two-generation process uh, to, to move into Judaism a lot of times. Um, You've got to remember, at this point, even before the fall of Jerusalem, uh, there are more Jews living outside of Palestine than inside Palestine, which is true today as well. They have scattered. They call this scattering the diaspora. And diaspora is the word for scattering seeds. When you go through a field, uh, you broadcast it. You you throw the seeds out uh, by hand as widely as possible and try to get them into the dirt. Um, so Jewish people have scattered, and as you scatter, the further you get from Jerusalem, the less in your day-to-day -day life uh, importance that the temple plays and the more importance that the synagogue plays. So uh, the synagogue allows for... Um, worship of God uh, despite the diaspora. You can worship God at the local synagogue. And maybe sometime you might get to Jerusalem, but you might never go. Um, travel was much more difficult then than now, and there were many probably who never went. Um, you know, we look at a constant traveler like Paul. Um, well, he was the exception. Most people kind of stayed near the house when they were born. Didn't go very far at all. So, um, as the Jews traveled, they set up synagogues. They started interacting with the locals, intermarrying as well. And they started telling them about their beliefs. And that's where these God-fearing, Greek-speaking Gentiles came from. And we find this uh, fight over the God-fearer taking place in the book of Acts. Surprise, surprise where uh, Paul will show up in a town, uh, witness at the synagogue, 
uh, to the resurrection, uh, inevitably get kicked out, and then uh, continue to build a local church separate from the synagogue uh, with the local Jews who were uh, convinced, and also the local God-fearers, and eventually just general Gentiles from uh, the community um, who didn't have anything to do with the synagogue. But there was this competition for the God-fear, and uh, the Jews, Jewish folks, the synagogue people who were uh, slowly cultivating this family uh, over a generation to bring them into Judaism, all of a sudden they're gone. And they're over at this church, and what is that about? And they're stealing our members, and you get a lot of resentment really quickly uh, in a situation like that. So, um, exactly where the gospel went, we don't know, um, but it does seem to be addressed to people, to me, uh, who um, have come into Christianity from the Gentile world as opposed to uh, being converted Jews. So, it's a Gentile writing to Christian Gentiles, and probably it's a witness, hopefully, to uh, Gentiles who have not yet been converted. So it could be used to witness to new people. Okay, so we start with a rather lengthy um, uh, nativity narrative, birth of Jesus narrative. And uh, a lot of the most famous stuff for Christmas comes from here, uh, like the angel appearing to Mary, the magnif. Uh, Magnificat, my soul magnifies the Lord. Um, the interaction with Mary and Elizabeth. Um, birth of John the Baptist, so we get both of John the Baptist. And then uh, the couple have to travel from their home up in Galilee down to Bethlehem for taxation. Boy, they were serious about their taxes, the Romans. Um and so um, this is where we have the famous nativity where he's born, uh, laid in a manger. The, um, in this story, we have the uh, shepherds come. And most of the time when we're at Christmas, we don't think about who's doing what from which gospel. Uh, the wise men were from Matthew. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's from John. So I kind of put these together, and what makes Christmas uh, special for Christians, it is a um, originally a pagan holiday. Uh, the Christians were having trouble getting the Romans to stop celebrating Saturnalia, to the god Saturn, which occurred around winter solstice. And so um, let's substitute something of ours, uh, the Nativity of Christ, but... The two big celebrations in the liturgy are the birth of Christ and then the death and resurrection of Christ. Easter, Christmas and Easter are the biggies. Even rather non-liturgical Christians hold on to these. And what makes these two special? Uh, one is the idea of the incarnation. So you are incarnated when you come into the carks or the flesh um 
And so this comes to us, um, you know, the divinity of Christ coming in human form. This is pretty much from John. Uh, but then the machinery of the story, that's all from uh, Luke and Matthew. And uh, so this idea of God walking among us uh, in human form, caring what happens to us, um, this comes from the incarnation. And it's a very important part of Christian theology. And then the death and resurrection, of course, are key to Christian theology as well. Um, so... Uh, Easter uh, week, the Passion, the, uh, the Passover, the, the Lord's Supper, the trial, the death, the resurrection, all of these um, have to do with Jesus dying for humans, dying for us, and uh, opening up salvation that way. So, um, you know, there's god coming to us and then getting us back to god uh and christmas is god coming to us emmanuel god with us and easter is about getting us back to god so that we will survive the tribulations to come okay So that's the, um, you know, kind of the composite reading of uh, Matthew, Luke, and John, and how those have kind of blossomed into Christmas, and the, you know, the theological meaning for the church behind the holy day of Christmas. Why is it holy? Um, and that has to do with the idea of incarnation, which you get from kind of putting these together with a little bit of uh, Greek philosophy to mortar it uh, into uh, something that fits together. I already talked about the temptation. I kind of want to focus um, and let's start with the teaching of the um, the uh, in chapter 6, verse 20, of the uh, John version of the Beatitudes. Blessed be ye poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. So remember in Matthew, and they both probably had a source, I would imagine that Matthew would be more likely to add in spirit, poor in spirit, then Luke would be to take it out. Our tendency is to want to spiritualize. And it may be that Jesus is talking about the poor who don't have cash in their pockets. Um, for yours is the kingdom of God. And kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven are about the same. I believe Matthew tends to um, substitute heaven for the name of God, maybe as a you know attempt not to take God's name, although he does use God's name, but... He just doesn't want to overdo it. Uh, Blessed are ye that hunger now, for ye shall be filled. And he's talking about eschatological uh, reversal when uh, in the end of time, the eschaton, the people who are poor now become rich, and the people who are rich now become poor. And that's the point in the parable of uh, the rich man and Lazarus. So uh, there is a strong social element to the gospel, especially the way that Luke is setting it up. 
Uh, Blessed are ye that weep now, for ye shall laugh. Blessed are you when men shall hate you, and when they shall separate you from their company, and shall reproach you, and cast out your name as evil for the son of makes, uh, man's sake. So uh, we've seen before this uh, problem of suffering for the believer. Why am I suffering? And uh, Job's friends tried desperately to get him to believe he was suffering because he had sinned. Uh, remember the man born blind? And um, who sinned? Did he sin in the womb or did his parents sin? Um that he was born blind. And um, um, there's another possibility, and that is that we're suffering because we're so awesome and good and people are persecuting us because they hate God and therefore they hate us. And that's why I like to think I suffer. Um, it's because uh, people are rejecting God and therefore me. Um But woe unto you, and here is the eschatological reversal. Woe unto you that are rich, for you have received your consolation. Um, You know, there's this Jesus that's running around our country today that I really don't recognize, the rich man's Jesus, or rich person's Jesus, excuse me. Um, And God loves them more, and that's why he's given them so much stuff, and so they're better than us. Um, even though you can see by the lives they lead, they're pretty horrible people. Uh, but, you know, they can only get rich because God gave it to them, and therefore that they have to be good. Well, that's not what we see here. Woe unto you that are full, for you shall hunger. Woe unto you that laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe unto you when men shall speak well of you, for so did their fathers to the false prophets. Okay, a lot of this uh, rest of this material we've seen in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, so I want you to get your synopsis out and um, look at page 101. Um, it's uh, paragraph number 114, the woman with the ointment, compare with 267 and 306. And this is a very rare um, story that winds up in all four Gospels. It's in Mark, Matthew, and Luke. Both take it. Matthew basically takes it with a few minor changes. Uh, Luke works it over quite a bit. And it's almost unrecognizable in the Gospel of John. Um, although they all seem to go back to the same thing. This woman comes to him. Uh, she has a bottle of expensive ointment. Um, pure nard. Alabaster jar. Uh, pours it on his head. And this could have been sold for 300 silver coins. Now, how much is that? Well, the... Obviously, if you're a skilled tradesperson, you can make more, but the common ordinary day laborer made one of these coins per day. Uh, They would get one silver coin a day for a day's wage. That was the kind of the minimum wage of Palestine. Uh, uh, 
let's say a quarter a day. I don't know uh, what it would be worth. A lot more than that, but uh, still not much. So basically, uh, 300 uh, of these would be a year's worth of work. Um, so what would a year's worth of work be at minimum wage? Let's see, 750 an hour. Five times 40 hours a week times 50 weeks a year. So $15,000. Um, <laughs> uh, I don't know if that's a very good way to convert it, but it's a minimum wage for a year, all spent on this one act. Um, now, who was the woman? According to... Matthew, Mark, and Luke, she was a woman of ill repute, otherwise unnamed. Um, and according to John, it was Mary. Um, So, in, uh, according to John, it's Mary, the sister of Martha, who is uh, wielding the alabaster ointment. And uh, there is a tradition in the church that Mary Magdalene um, was at one time a prostitute, woman of ill repute, because Jesus cast seven demons out of her. But where did they get this other thing? I think it's from this. You've got a story where in one version, it's a woman of ill repute. In another version, it's Mary, the sister of Martha and uh, Lazarus. But uh, thanks to the well-known uh, transitive property of Mary's, um, every Mary is the same except for Mary, the mother of Jesus. So uh, somehow people got the idea that it was Mary Magdalene doing this. Um, and therefore, since in the parallel passages, uh, the woman was a woman of ill repute, uh, for whatever reason, not, not necessarily a prostitute, but uh, there's also the transitive property of ill repute. So uh, presto, um, the woman who's um, um, washing Jesus' feet with her hair becomes Mary Magdalene, and Mary Magdalene becomes a prostitute. Um, okay, I hope that cleared that up. <laughs> it got pushed over uh, onto Mary Magdalene that she was the uh, prostitute because Mary and Martha and uh, Lazarus, obviously very respectable kind of middle-class people, um, she wouldn't you know, well enough to do that they could afford such a fantastic gift uh, for Jesus. Um, and uh, this other woman, the uh, the prostitute, how would she ever get such... Well, I mean, we know she's got a bad reputation, and so everybody has assumed it's because of sex work. I don't think it says that. It just they don't like the woman uh, for whatever reason, and we've always assumed she was a sex worker. So, um, well, um, the Luke passage um, is quite profound. 
um, oh, uh, in the, um, in the Mark version, some of the people who see her make this expensive, um, uh, gift on Jesus, um, com- complain. In Matthew, it's a little bit sharpened. Uh, it's the disciples who say that. In Luke, it is Simon the Pharisee. And in John, it's Judas. So nobody comes out looking particularly good. Um, now, it's rather unusual for Jesus to say the same thing in Mark, Matthew, and John, but here he does, and that's the poor you have with you always. Now, the way I've always heard that verse put out there is uh, there'll always be poor people, so why try to help? That's not what Jesus is saying at all. He said, you always have these people uh, who don't have money that need your help, and you're going to be doing that for the rest of your lives. Helping the poor, it's what Christians do. Um, But right now, we're using this money on me because I won't always be here to have this kind of attention paid to me. And I think in John, well... In John, it said it's part of getting ready for my burial. So uh, it's like she's um, embalming his body ahead of time. They didn't embalm. Uh, Nobody embalmed back then. Not the way we do now. Egyptians made mummies, but they did. um, They would spice, put stuff on bodies to uh, deal with the smell, a lot of it. So let's look more closely at the um, John, uh, Luke version, since that's what we're talking about today. And one of the Pharisees desired that he would eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and sat down to meet. And behold, a woman in the city, which was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at meat in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster box of ointment. And stood at his feet behind him, weeping, and began to wash his feet with tears, and did wipe them with the hairs of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee which had bidden him saw it, he spake with him himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would have known who and what manner of woman this is that toucheth him, for she is a sinner. She's going to contaminate Jesus. And Jesus answering, I'm sure he wasn't that quiet with his grumbling. I've known people that could grumble and be heard three rooms away. Um, grumble, grumble. And Jesus answering said unto him, Simon, I have something to say unto thee. And he saith, Master, say on. There was a certain creditor which had two debtors. The one owed five hundred pence and the other fifty. And when they had nothing to pay, he frankly forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him most? Simon answered and said, I suppose he to whom he forgave most. And he said unto him, Thou hast rightly judged. And he turned to the woman and said unto Simon, Seest thou this woman? I entered into thine house, thou gavest me no water for my feet, but she hath washed my feet with tears and wiped them with the hairs of her head. Thou gavest me no kiss, but this woman, since the time I came in, hath not ceased to kiss my feet. My head with oil thou didst not anoint, but this woman hath anointed my feet with ointment. 
Wherefore I say unto thee, Her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. And he said unto her, Thy sins are forgiven. And they said it meet with him, they that said it meet with him began to say within themselves, Who is this that forgiveth sins also? And he said unto the woman, Thy faith has saved thee. Go in peace. Um, now, I've said that Luke himself was probably a Gentile, but you get a lot of Palestinian culture right in this passage. Um, the, the way that you would eat a meal, especially a, a you know, a formal, they didn't have sit-down meals, they had lie-down meals. And you would lie down, you would um, uh, prop up on your left elbow, and probably have some pillows and stuff. And then, um, in order to get more people up at the table, your your head would be kind of up at the table, but then your feet would be angling back and uh, to the right. And then you eat with your right hand. Um I need to eat quicker than that. I need both my hands. But uh, that's the way they ate in a formal reclining situation. And so Jesus' feet and the rest of the people's feet were kind of far away from the table. This woman that shows up uninvited uh, then starts kissing and washing and crying over his feet and annoying them. And Jesus compares that to Simon, who has basically dissed Jesus. He's a terrible host according to the expectations of the time. Uh, Jesus came in. He gave Jesus no kiss. Um, It's like refusing to shake his hand. He's been a jackass to Jesus. Um, So he gave him no kiss, but that woman has kissed his feet. Uh, So that shows how much more she loves Jesus than this Pharisee who wants to sit in judgment over him rather than uh, follow him. Um, It was also customary after greeting that you um, help your guest clean up from the dust of the road. And so washing feet was an activity usually not carried out by the host themselves, but by one of their servants. But nobody's washed Jesus' feet. Normally, you would anoint somebody's head with oil as part of the kind of cleaning up ritual, get nice and greasy for the party ahead, Um, which Simon does not do. Again, he is publicly uh, trying to humiliate Jesus in the eyes of all of his friends. You know, everybody that's there except for the disciples is probably from that local town, and these are Simon's friends, and they're kind of, uh, here are these up-and-comers, and we're going to put them in their place. Um, and this woman, instead of um, anointing his head with oil, anoints it with this very expensive um, ointment that comes from the alabaster box, this year's worth of salary that she just wastes on Jesus. Um, now, the the criticism here is not the waste. That's in the other three Gospels. Uh, the criticism here is on the person approaching Jesus and that Jesus shouldn't have to do with sinners um, because um, he should be 
hanging with the saints, the good people. And this ties in with the other two um, stories from Luke that I want to look at. In Luke 10, we have Luke's version. Well, it's actually the only version. <laughs> this is a this is a parable that only shows up in Luke. But Luke's version of uh, the um, prime commandment, uh, verse twenty-five. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him, which is to say, tested him, saying, "Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life?" And he said unto him, "What is written in the law? How readest thou?" And he answered. Answering, said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy strength, and with all thy mind, and thy neighbor as thyself. So he does, uh, really, probably at this point, uh, the scribes and Pharisees have been huddling a lawyer, um, somebody who studies the law, not the law of Rome, but the law of the Old Testament. They tended to hang out with the Pharisees. Um, the um, the uh, synagogue has been the center for a couple of thousand years for dudes getting together and debating over what the law means. Um, and so they've heard Jesus answer this question and want to, they know that's his answer, but now they've got the clever question to follow up. Uh, you know how when you have an argument, you can... Um, Think about later on that night. That's the wonderful thing about Facebook is that I may not have anything to say to you right away, but by, you know, four or five hours from now, I'll come up with a brilliant retort and uh, put it in there. And um, it makes me really look smart compared to how I do live one-on-one -on -one trying to argue with somebody. And I never think of this stuff. So he's thought of this. And he said, to, uh, Jesus said unto him, Thou hast answered right, this do, and thou shalt live. But he, wishing to justify himself, it says willing, but I'm intensifying it a little bit, said unto Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And so remember the very first question, humanity's oldest question, Hashemer. Aki, Anuki, am I my brother's keeper? Um, well, if I am, then who's my brother? If I am, then who is my neighbor? And there are people I do not want to be my neighbor. I, I want to get these illegals out of here. I want to get, um, you know, uh, sick people need to have a job before uh, we uh, tend to their sickness. You know, that's uh, been something the Louisiana legislature has been working on because being the 50th state, 50th out of 50 worst state in the nation for health doesn't happen by accident. You have to work at it. You have to work at making people sick. You have to work at killing people. You have to work at polluting the environment. These things don't just happen. So he doesn't want to be a neighbor. And Jesus comes up with a parable. Jesus answering said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho 
and fell among thieves, which stripped him of his raiment, and wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. And by chance there came down a certain priest that way, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And likewise a Levite, when he was at the place, came and looked on him, and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him, and went to him, and bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine, and setting him on his own beast, and brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And on the morrow, when he departed, he took out two pence, and gave it to the host, and said unto him, Take care of him, and whatsoever thou spendest more, when I come, I will repay thee. Which now of these three thinkest thou was the neighbor to him that fell among thieves? And he said, He that showed mercy on him. Then said Jesus unto him, Go, and do thou likewise. So Jesus changes the question, not who is the neighbor, but who acts like a neighbor. And so we are put in situations every day where we can act like a neighbor to somebody. And the question is, will we? And again, there's a popular theology out there that just totally doesn't hold with any of this. Um, They take care of them and their own, and that's it. Um, So the... uh, priest is a priest who works at the temple. The Levites were related to the priests. Priests are Levites. Um, And a Levite is um, from the tribe, the priestly tribe. So basically the priest and the Levite are the good religious people, a preacher and a deacon, if we want to translate it to um, my modern Baptist uh, congregation. And the Samaritan, they were people that served God, remember, but were viewed as mutts. They were mixed, possibly, with the local people, and they worshipped in the wrong place. And um, so um, the idea of the Samaritan being the hero who acts like a neighbor cuts against what it is that this lawyer wants to believe about himself. I can act like a neighbor and choose who I act like a neighbor with. I don't have to be universal in my love. Um, So let's move on to... chapter 15. And again, we're in that same situation. The situation... um, there is um there is an, a debate that takes place in the Bible. We've talked about it before, especially with the book of Jonah. Um, xenophobia versus xenophilia. The xenos is the stranger, and xenophilia is love for the stranger, love for the outsider, love for the sinner. Uh, xenophobia is fear of this outsider, but it so often shades over into hate. And uh, not only did many of the proper religious folks of the day um, 
hate Gentiles, but they hated a lot of Jews too, the ones that didn't measure up to them. Uh, in chapter 15 of Luke, then drew near unto him all the publicans and sinners for to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes murmured, This man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. And he spake this parable unto them, saying, So uh, Jesus has three parables, the parable of the lost sheep. And if you lose a sheep, what do you do? You go out and hunt it until you find it. I say unto you that likewise joy shall be in heaven more over one sinner that repenteth than over uh, more than over ninety and nine just persons who need no repentance. Same thing if you lose a piece of silver. I know if I had a hundred dollar bill and uh, it was gone, I would definitely seek out to find it. Um, we we will diligently search for that and be glad when we find it. Just so overwhelmed. Oh boy, it's here. I thought maybe um, one of my rascal kids had run off with it, but no, it's here. Um, then I want to focus, because these all have the same overall message, but I want to focus a little more closely on the prodigal son. Um, and it ties in with this overall message of Luke, of reaching out to the outsider, whether it be publican, whether it be sinner, whether it be woman of ill repute, or Gentile. A certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. Now, um, the traditional Jewish way of dividing up inheritance was that the eldest received a double portion. So, essentially... If the dad had $30, he would divide it up into three parts, 10, 10, 10, give $20 to the elder son and $10 to the younger. If you had four, uh, wait, three sons, three sons, uh, then you would divide it up into quarters, give two quarters to the eldest and then one quarter to each of the younger sons. if you have five sons, you divide it up into six parts and give the double portion to the eldest, and so on. Um, so the younger son would have gotten a third of the estate when his dad died. Now this asking for the money ahead of time was unheard of. Um, it's like telling his dad, I wish you were dead. So it's a horrible breach. Um, moreover... There is no social security at this time. Um, the people that take care of you when you are old are your kids. Uh, honor thy father and mother means look after them until they die. Um, you know, social security has uh, liberated us from having to care financially so much for our elderly parents, even as we may have to, um, you know, deal with their failing health in other ways, but, um, you know, we have a lot more resources now to help us out when our parents get old. They, it was up to these two boys, and this one saying, I want you dead, I want mine now, I want to leave, and then, you know, I don't care what happens to you. I've got to go. Not many days after the younger son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country, and there wasted his substance with riotous living. 
And when he had spent all, there arose a mighty famine in that land, and he began to be in want. And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. Now imagine, you're a respectable young Jewish fellow. You're so hungry. Um, you're so desperate for a job uh, that you become a pig farmer. And he said he fain would have fain filled his belly with the husks that the swine did eat, and no man gave unto him. So he was so hungry, he wanted some of that um, slop the pigs were eating. That's how bad it was for him. Uh, in this line, verse 17, when he came to himself, um, this is a real moment of insight, of self-awareness. Uh, he's woken up. Um, in recovery, they call it hitting bottom, um, where you finally reach a point where a little light comes on and you see things are really bad and there are ways that things could get better if I would try something else. They also call this a moment of clarity. So he has this moment of clarity. He hits bottom. He says, oh my goodness, my father's day laborers have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father. So um, he's going not out of love, but out of hunger, desperation. He's screwed up. Um, at the end of every hero's journey lies the return to mother's house. <laughs> we don't know where mom is, but, uh, you know, when you have to move back in with the folks because you're thinking they may need some help, um, you've hit that malpost. But he he um, also recognizes um, where he has failed. He said, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee, and am no more worthy to call thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. And he arose and came to his father, but when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. Um, so... Um, again, this gives us uh, some insight. If we know a little more about Palestinian culture at the time, dignified elderly men did not run. Uh, this wasn't the time where uh, old guys put on spandex and uh, pilot goggle, uh, you know, uh, uh, sunglasses and went out and ran a lot. Um, you had to pull up your... Uh, tunic, which was essentially a long dress that men wore, and you would have to gird up your loins, or he would probably just reach down, grabbed the bottom of his hem, and then ran out. It was a ridiculous-looking spectacle, and old men avoided re looking ridiculous at all costs, but when he sees his son, he forgets all that, because he's so happy to see him. And the son said unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. And the father basically just ignores him. The father said to his servants, Bring forth the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. So he's so poor, he's got some rags he's wearing, but his shoes are gone. 
that's how far down he's gone. And bring hither the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. Now if that's the story, that's a beautiful story. It's complete in and of itself. We don't need anything else except because of the the situation, we need this latter part. Um, who is the elder brother? Well, that's the Pharisees and the scribes. It's a pretty clear allegorical uh, application. Um, but, or now, the elder brother was in the field. And as he came and drew nigh to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what things things meant. And he said unto him, Thy brother is come, and thy father hath killed the fatted calf, because he received him safe and sound. And he was angry, and would not go in. Therefore came, well, I totally get the elder brother. I'm an older brother. I have a sister. She's gotten in trouble before, and I've resented uh, her. This was 40 years ago, so, you know, probably breaking curfew or something. Nothing horribly serious, but the kinds of things uh, you get in trouble for in a little town like Ruston when your dad's the preacher. Um, So, um, the elder brother is full of resentment. Uh, This is the attitude of the scribes, it's the attitude of the Pharisees, it's the attitude of Jonah, it's the attitude of Cain. This we may think as being perhaps in a sense the mark of Cain, that this is the, the, the thing that has come down to us, this is our resentment of our brothers and sisters. And his father came out and entreated him. Now, again, uh, this is where uh, Palestinian culture, understanding it, is important. And I can't remember the name of the book I read. And it's in a box somewhere (laughs) uh, in my attic. So I uh, haven't been able to lay hands on it. But, oh, Poet and Peasant, I think. Hold on. I had a... uh, uh, my brain turned on. Uh, uh here we go. Yes. Um, hold on, it's loading. Maybe. Uh, here it's trying. Kenneth E. Bailey, Poet and Peasant, and Through Peasant Eyes, A Literary Cultural Approach to the Parables in Luke. This is well worth the $25, and you can find it used for $15. Um, he doesn't deal with... He does. He deals with a few parables, but he lived in Palestine for many years, and he talks about um, how these parables play in that culture. Very, very good stuff. And anyway, um, the elder son's job when dad is having a party is you are the assistant host. Uh, His job was to go in and help welcome people, make sure everything's running, 
greet people, uh, make sure people have wine, people are getting food, people have their seats. Um, so it's his job to help out. If I turned you off. Okay, here I am back again. Uh, my 11-year-old was getting a little noisy. Um, so, anyway, um, sons, what are you going to do? Um, he um, he comes out, which a respectable father would uh, kind of close his mouth and grit his teeth and go on hosting the party and then there would be hell to pay afterward when he got the son alone. But instead he goes out, again humiliates himself, to try to restore the relationship. The one son he ran down the street to see, the other son he goes outside and tries to talk to him. And he answering said to his father, Lo, these many years do I serve thee, neither transgressed I at any time thy commandment, and yet thou never gavest me a kid. A, a goat that I might make merry with my friends. Now all his friends are here, but he won't say party for himself. He won't say Bruce party, which is what I want. I want a party for me. I don't want a party for my sister. Uh, I want to be the center of attention, the guest of honor, and not have to um, play host while my deadbeat brother is the guest of honor. As soon as this thy son was come, not my brother, but thy son, which hath devoured thy living with harlots, uh, thou hast killed for him the fatted calf. And I totally get that. I totally understand it, um, even more so than Jonah. I kind of, you know, Jonah doesn't come across, but the brother is very well spoken for his perspective. And he said unto him, Son, thou art ever with thee, and all that I have is thine. You are going to get it all as soon as I die. And essentially what he's saying now is what the younger brother said then, which was, I want you dead so I can have parties for myself. And it was meet that we should make merry and be glad. For this thy brother was dead and is alive again and was lost and is found. So there's this profound change of perspective that we need if we are going to look at people the way that Jesus does. Um, not as, you know, horrible sinners to be cast out and judged and looked down upon, and let's find that scarlet letter, where the hell is it? Instead, the lost lamb coming home the lost son here again, alive, when we thought he might be dead. Um, and so this great longing for the lost people that um, he wants to come to him. And not this judgmental, holier-than-thou, self-righteous, 
You know, how are you going to be spiritual with that kind of attitude? I don't know. Okay, that was what I really wanted to focus on from the Gospel of Luke. Um, we've talked about a lot of the rest of it when we talked about Matthew and Mark, Mark and Matthew. Uh, so next time we will pick up the book of Acts.